morning, everyone. Glad to be with you today. We're beginning a new uh, preaching series for the summer called God's Message for Misfits, and the outline is in your bulletin this, day, this morning of all the texts and topics that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at a variety of people throughout the Bible who kind of just didn't fit the profile of that perfect follower of God, you know, that perfect believer. They're people with flaws, with questions, with doubts, with worries, who don't always follow the script of what you might call a quote-unquote good Christian. And remarkably, we'll see how God loves them anyway, and how God uses them remarkably. And our first misfit this morning is Job. Job, whose questions about suffering and injustice, they still echo down through the corridors of time. And so I want to read some of Job's questioning from chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. And you can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen above. Job writes, Why doesn't the Almighty bring the wicked to judgment? Why must the godly wait for him in vain? Evil people steal land by moving the boundary markers. They steal livestock and put them in their own pastures. They take the orphan's donkey and demand the widow's ox as security for a loan. The poor pushed off the path. The needy must hide together for safety. Like wild donkeys in the wilderness, the poor must spend all their time looking for food, searching even in the desert for food for their children. They harvest a field they do not own, and they glean in the vineyards of the wicked. All night they lay naked in the cold without covering or clothing. They are soaked by mountain showers. They huddle against the rocks for want of a home. Nursing mothers have their babies snatched for them, and the infants of the poor are kidnapped and sold. The poor must go about naked without any clothing. They harvest food for others while they themselves are starving. They press out olive oil without being allowed to taste it. And they tread in the wine press as they suffer from thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the wounded cry for help, and yet God ignores their moaning. Let's pray for a second. Lord, speak to us now through your word, and send your spirit to guide us into your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. About 15 years ago, I was part of the first team from our church that went to the African country of Malawi to get a first-hand look at the work that was being done by one of our mission partners, African Enterprise. And that trip has launched a much deeper commitment not only to African Enterprise, but then to World Vision and Why Malawi, so that uh, Malawi continues today as a major focus of our global engagement with the poor and the spiritually distressed. But it all started with us basically wandering around the capital city of Lilongwe, uh, most of the events that we were supposed to participate in with African Enterprise were in the evening. And so the, during the day, we wanted to experience as much as we, as we possibly could. And so we were just wandering around visiting a variety of Christian missions. And I wasn't quite prepared emotionally for what was ahead. One of the places we visited was the Ministry of Hope Crisis Nursery. It's a home for children abandoned by their parents, abandoned because their parents couldn't afford to feed them or they just didn't want them or because many and probably most of these children were infected with the HIV-AIDS virus, and they were, they were going to die. And inside, there were about 40 to 50 children in cribs scattered throughout this one-story house, all shrouded in blue mosquito netting, all with their arms up wanting to be picked up, wanting to be loved. Well, you couldn't help but just go and pick up a baby and just kind of cradle it in your arms. And we all felt the tug on our hearts, wondering, why couldn't we just bring a child home with us to the U.S.? 
uh, knowing that we couldn't, the Malawi government doesn't allow international adoptions unless, of course, you're a rock star like Madonna, who's got plenty of money to spread around. But, of course, she didn't really want an AIDS-infected baby. So it broke our hearts to have to leave those children there, even though the staff and the Roman Catholic nuns who ran the place really poured out their love into the children. But you couldn't have your, help but have your heart broken for them. You can't help but ask why. I mean, why did innocent children get abandoned? Why did they have to suffer? Why is it more being done? Then you realize the children in this ministry of hope, they're only a handful of the millions of children all over the world who live in grinding poverty, who die of preventable and treatable diseases, mostly because of corruption in their own governments. But holding a child in your arm makes all those mind-numbing statistics just kind of real and very personal. And you have to ask, why? Why would God let this happen? And that opens up even larger questions. Why do bad things happen at all? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do evil people seem to prosper? They seem to get away with it. Where is the justice? Where is God in all this? In my experience, this is the number one question that often creates a roadblock for people in how, when they turn away from God, a, a sense of bitterness because life is not fair. And even though they might have been on the path of a relationship with God, people get stopped cold by some experience of disappointment in their own lives. And they turn it around and they point the finger of blame at God and say, God, this is your fault. The question of suffering, it's the number one thing that makes people feel like, like they're a square peg and faith in God is a round hole and they don't know how to put those two things together. And then the deeper question is more personal. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to those that I love? Will we face suffering? Will we have to face tragedy? And if umpteen generations of humanity have anything to tell us, the answer is yes. At some point, everyone here is going to face loss and pain and disappointment and death. The statistics on death are pretty clear. 100% of us are going to die. So where is God in the middle of this when I'm suffering and in grief? That's the cry of Job. That's why his book in the Old Testament stands alongside all the greatest classics of human literature, right alongside Homer or Hemingway or Shakespeare or Dante or Confucius. For some 4,000 years, the book of Job has been unequaled in its exploration of the issues of suffering and grief and hope and faith. His book is an extended parable, a life lesson of this wrestling with God. Why has this struggle been preserved? Why should we all listen to it? Because at some point in our lives, Job's struggle will be ours. Some of you may be in the middle of that struggle this morning as you face a tough medical or personal issue in your life or someone that you love. Why, God? Why? In chapter 1 of this story, Job is described as a righteous man. doesn't mean he's perfect, but as human beings go, he was one of the good guys. He's introduced as being blameless and upright, uh, one who worshiped God with reverence and turned away from evil. His reputation is, is really flawless. His faith in God is sincere. It governs his life. Chapter 1 describes the many ways in which God has blessed him. Seven sons, three daughters, huge numbers of sheep and camels and oxen and servants. He was a top one percenter in his day. But his wealth and his power, they don't go to his head, don't stroke his ego. He was a humble guy who took great pleasure in his family. He loved his children, did everything he could to raise them right, trust them to the Lord. He prayed for them, 
taught them about God. He interceded with God for his children, offered sacrifices on behalf of his children. He was a good man. And then seemingly out of nowhere, tragedy strikes. First, a messenger comes with the bad news that this group called the Sabaeans had attacked and stolen all his oxen and livestock, killed all the servants who were tending them. Then another messenger comes with, with even worse news. Lightning started a grass fire, and all his sheep and all the shepherds got burned up in the blaze. And then another messenger comes, tells him that the Chaldeans had raided his camel herd, took away all of them, and killed all his servants. And then finally, most tragically, really the knockout blow, the message comes that all of his children were crushed to death when a tornado hit his house and caused it to collapse with them inside. Unbelievable. Now notice how two of these calamities were caused by the violent actions of people, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, and two of the tragedies were caused by what insurance adjusters would call acts of God, a lightning strike and a tornado. That sounds like the daily news, doesn't it? Somewhere in the world, bad things are happening every day, either as the result of the evil actions of people or as a consequence of our interaction with nature. Terrorists or tsunamis, take your pick. All Job's, Job's prosperity was gone in one afternoon. He's devastated, crushed. He is holding on to his faith by a thread. But miraculously, he does hold on. Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell upon the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gives. The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His grief is so real. In his culture, they had physical ways to express grief. Tearing clothes, shaving your head, sitting on a pile of ashes. They had rituals of lament which in our prosperity-driven world where we expect to be given health and wealth, we've kind of lost any good rituals for our grieving. His grief is real and intense, but his faith is giving him the strength just to hold on by his fingernails. And then all too realistically something happens. All this loss proves to be too great for Job's wife. She shared all the same losses with him. She's endured the same suffering for her children her home, her financial future, and in her grief, her faith in God and her marriage, they collapse. They crack under the strain. And that so often happens in a marriage when there's a crisis, especially if there's the death of a child. It's just too much. You can't take it. So she says in verse 9 of chapter 1, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die, Job. I mean, wow, curse God. I mean, that's some real pain there. It's not very often that a marriage can recover after an emotional exchange like that. But Job's response shows that he's still holding on to that slender thread of faith. He says, shall I receive good at the hand of God and shall I not receive evil? In other words, are we only going to serve God during the good times when life goes exactly the way we want? Do we only trust God in the light and not in the darkness? Job really hits the nail on the head because that's the way a lot of us handle it when life throws us for a loop. Curse God and die. At least people begin to die on the inside. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse for Job, it does. While he's reeling from the shock of losing his family, his wealth, his body betrays him. And isn't that true? That often there's a connection between the emotional and the physical. In chapter 27, or chapter 2, verse 7, it says, 
He was afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I mean, I had a six-week bout with the shingles last fall, and I can tell you it just about drove me over the edge. And that's nothing compared to what Job was going through. His skin is just kind of festering and bubbling with boils. In chapter 7, we're even told that worms feed on his open sores and scab. Yuck, you know. I mean, I've heard of doctors today using maggots to eat away dead skin on an open wound. Well, the worms using, they were using Job as, as their buffet breakfast, you know. He is in so much agony. He is desperate for relief. He starts taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping his skin. Can you imagine any more pitiful scene? And then come along Job's friends. I mean, they really do care for him. They join him in a long silence just out of empathy for his distress. They were just present with him. And that's a good model for us on how to be with someone who's going through a crisis like that. Just be present with them. But what follows in the next 30 chapters is their long conversations with Job. They are trying to help, but sometimes, you know, people just say stupid things in a time of grief. They're uncomfortable being around somebody who's in pain. The pain is kind of like a mirror that they don't want to look into. And so people say stupid things like, well, God must have needed them more in heaven. You know, that is just stupid. It's better not to say anything than that kind of trite nonsense. Job's friends, they're trying to be helpful. But you can summarize their view of Job's situation this way. Good people prosper, bad people get punished. It's that simple. If something bad is happening to you, Job, then it's your fault. You did something wrong. You made God mad, so you're getting what you deserved. And I would guess that there are a lot of people today who actually feel that way. You know, you did something wrong. You've got a secret sin going on in your life, and God or karma or fate or whatever is finally getting back at you. So to all this personal suffering, we add the extra crushing load of false guilt. No wonder people feel broken and bitter. Remarkably, Job rejects this view. He stands up to his well-meaning friends, does not give in to their misguided advice. He says, no, the evidence is clear. As you look at the world, bad things do happen to good people. And sometimes evil, evil people, they do get away with it. And Job then struggles to understand why. But he is so honest in his struggle. He knows this is a roadblock in his relationship with God. It's a chasm that a lot of people can't cross. The anger that they feel towards God, instead of getting through it through lament, it goes in and becomes a poison. You probably know somebody who kind of carries a perpetual chip on their shoulder against God. Somebody who got stuck in their grief like they were walking through a swamp and they just get stuck because they said, I prayed and he didn't answer me. I didn't get the miracle I was looking for, so I am done with God. One of Job's friends, a guy named Elihu, comes on the scene in chapter 32. Elihu makes some good points about the why of suffering, that God can reveal himself through your suffering. God can shape you and change you through your suffering, that we can be drawn closer to God because the rest of life has been stripped away. We become closer to him because he's all that we have to depend on. Like the saying goes, when God is all you have, you have all you need, and that's a great Instagram post, but it's not so easy when it's your life. And Job is not satisfied with that. Couldn't God teach me another way? Couldn't he teach me these same lessons? Couldn't he draw me closer to himself? Why does it have to be through suffering? Yes, he can reveal himself through suffering, but is that the only way? 
And of course, we can be shaped and molded through the process, but that still doesn't explain the suffering of the innocent and of the children. What lesson are babies supposed to be learning in their suffering? You see, Job is very good at poking holes in simplistic answers. Now, ultimately, ultimately the answer comes at the end of the book in a vision, a conversation between Job and God himself. And ultimately, and I'm kind of speeding things up here, ultimately Job has to embrace the sovereignty of God. He has to embrace that at some level there's going to be mystery, a level of what we cannot know in this tension between God's sovereign power and God's loving mercy. The tension between the reality of sin in the world and God's desire to redeem us. There's tension going on in our good world, our natural environment, because it's marred by sin, and all nature bears those scars as we do. But suffering is not incompatible with, God, with a God of mercy, because this God will one day rescue us and rescue the world from sin and death. And Job realizes that there's always going to be some level of mystery as to why God allowed evil to exist in the first place, why it happened initially, why he allowed sin to enter the world at all and do the damage that it does. And that number one consequence is that we're all going to die. We don't live in this world forever, and there's no guarantee of how many years we will walk this earth. We will all experience suffering along the way. No one is immune, not even the very best person who ever walked this planet, and that was Jesus. God in the flesh, God was not content to leave us alone. He was at work throughout history redeeming the brokenness of this world. You know, Jesus was prophesied to be the suffering servant, this wounded healer, and he walked this world as one of us. He knows our suffering not from a distance, but from firsthand experience. He shares it with us. God is not remote, distant, uncaring, neutral when it comes to our distress. He is actively engaged with it to redeem and to restore and to set all things right. Jesus gave everything, including his own body, to be broken, to break the power of sin, so that death would not have the last word. And that's why Job could shout out more than 2,000 years before Jesus was crucified and resurrected. He could shout out Job 19.25, kind of the pivotal verse of the entire book. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth. Somehow thousands of years before it happened, Job knew about a resurrected Redeemer. It's amazing to me. The resurrected Jesus shows us that God is stronger than death and pain, and he will set things right. We may not like his timing, but that's above us. That's not our decision. At some point, we have to simply trust in God's sovereign goodness. But in the meantime, we all share in the consequences of living in a fallen world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So what do we do now, knowing that we live in this world where pain and grief and loss are real? What do we do when life is not fair to us, when our prayer is not answered the way that we want? Well, first of all, let your tears flow. Don't pretend. Don't try to be tough. Don't keep a stiff upper lip. We were made to grieve, and that's okay. Job 7:11. I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I love the honesty of the Bible. 
Job doesn't sugarcoat anything. We see his real authentic grief, his real emotion, even his anger towards God. You know, God can handle our anger when we just want to lash out at him. That is okay. Just read the Psalms. It's filled with anger towards God. God is not turned off by our questions or our confusion. God can handle it, but the key, the key is to stick with it long enough to go through your grief to the other side. And there is another side. A lot of people, they just get stuck in the middle of their grief like they're going through a swamp, and then it becomes like a comfortable depression. It becomes like a blanket that they can wrap around themselves, and that's a bad place to get stuck. Grieve. Grieve intensely, but go all the way through your grief. As it said, when you're going through hell, keep going. Second, we have to trust in the sovereignty of a good God. As hard as that may be, we have to embrace that there is this mystery of what we do not know based on this God that we do know. And so we can trust the Lord in the places that are hidden from our understanding because of the God that we do already know. We can trust Him in the dark because we know what God is like in the light. He will guide you. He will give you the strength that you need to go on. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people who've said, you know, I just felt carried. I felt a strength from outside of myself that somehow got me through. I don't even know how I made it, but I made it through, and that's the sovereign love of God who walks with us. Third, join the wounded healer. Join the wounded healer and look around at others even while you are in the middle of your bad thing. Because of your situation, you might be the only person who can actually speak to someone else who is facing the similar struggle. Only the person who has lost a child can really speak to a parent who's experiencing that kind of grief. Your pain gives you the authenticity to speak to that situation. So do what you can where you can. Because Jesus wants us to be involved in the suffering of others. Rather than avoiding those tough situations, Jesus wants us to be the ones who offer compassion, to be his hands in that hurting world. And maybe it's something simple. Maybe it's you just cut the grass for a neighbor who's going through chemo or something like that. But do what you can where you can. You see, God understands Job's suffering, Job's questioning. And God says that is normal. Job, or God says to Job, I hear you. I understand your pain. What you're going through, it's the normal response to an abnormal situation. And in the end, Job's little sliver of faith starts to get bigger. In the end, he finds peace. He has more children. His marriage is restored. But none of that takes away from the reality of his suffering. He will always grieve the loss of his children. But he can reach a point of peace. Now, that's easy in the abstract, not so easy in real life. There's a young woman that many of us know who used to be a member here who moved away a few years ago. She's the mother of two small children. Out of the blue this past week, she was diagnosed with a very extremely rare form of cancer. Uh, obviously, this just rocked her world, her family, her husband. She loves Jesus. She serves him with her, with her whole heart. Of all the people on the planet, you would say, not fair, God. She does not deserve to have to face this at this point in her life. She went right into surgery on Thursday, starting chemo right away. She's got a lot of people praying for her, but it's what she shared in an Instagram post that just about did me in, and I want to share it with you. This is what she wrote. When there is temptation to fear, 
I'll lift my eyes to the one who holds all things in his hand. When there are no answers, I will look to the one who authored life. When everyone else says hopeless, I look to the anchor of my soul and can praise him with a joyful hope. Though this earth is full of brokenness, sickness, and pain, I know my God is a God of life, joy, and peace. And when I have to walk hard roads, I praise God for those who are willing to walk alongside me, specifically her husband, the one who has taught me more about the love of God than anyone else ever has and I know ever will. I don't think Job could have said it any better than that. Let's pray. Lord, nobody wants to go through hard times. And I know there are people right here this morning who are in the thick of it. But knowing, Lord, ahead of time of a loving God, compassionate and merciful, who will see us all the way through, who understands we are but dust, understands our emotions, created our emotions, can handle our anger, distrust, confusion, our lashing out, our tears, our distrust, our doubting. Lord, you can handle it all, and you said you will walk through us even to the very end. And all of us will face that end of death at some point. But to know that we can shout like Job, that we know my Redeemer lives, and that he will walk or he will stand upon this earth. Lord, thank you that we have that sure and certain hope to guide us from this life into the next. For anybody who's experiencing that grief right now, Lord, we just pray for your special spirit to touch them and give them the strength that they will need this week to face what's ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.